I've decided I'm going to be more controversial on this show in 2022. Yeah, I see that. There you go. Hello, welcome to Hattrick. I'm Jordan Eller Coltman, joined this week by only Elliot Tanti. Elliot, this is becoming a uh, bit of a habit of you and I. Every couple weeks, Braden just leaves us alone to our own devices, and you and I have great conversations without him. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's almost as though we could just go on the two of us. <laughs> no, uh, we love Braden, and Braden's great, uh, but he is busy this week, so uh, we'll have to trudge on without him. We have an awesome episode for for you guys this week. Really, really excited. This is uh, something we've been trying to get together for a little while, and um, we've been trying for just to time it out, and it worked out perfectly uh, availability-wise that we were able to have a very, very special guest join us for the third topic of this week's episode. Uh, we're going to talk Olympics. And yeah, our special guest is Alicia Rissling, who is a former Olympic bobsledder. Uh, she went to the 2018 Games in Korea. Um, she's a pilot, was a pilot for the Canadian Olympic team. Really uh, just an amazing story. Um, she, she, she's, just, she's a great storyteller. She's a great um, ambassador for the sport of bobsled and just the Canadian Olympic movement. And, and we had a great conversation with her about her journey and her career because she also just recently um, you know, failed to make this year's Olympic team based a little bit on some bureaucracy we get into uh and obviously also the the struggles of coming back from an injury she tore her her uh leg up and had to recover and then a covid hit and it just was like two years of just slogging it alone in her garage gym anyway she's got an amazing story the one thing i didn't get to with her that i did want to touch on before we got going because it's such an awesome story she's also the very first woman in the world to have piloted an all-female four-person bobsled uh, traditionally, the four-man bobs that is only uh, uh, competed by men, but that recently changed where they made it basically gender-neutral. Women could be in the sled. It's not a man or woman thing. Unfortunately, men are a lot bigger and a lot stronger in that sport, and every major international competition tends to just have four men um, doing it. So anyway, uh, but she she was able to pilot the very first four-man bobsled. So I wanted to put that in there because we touched on it, but we didn't really get to it. There's just so much other stuff we talked about. So um, she's just a great ambassador. We'll get to that in topic three. Before we get there, we've got some football to talk about and then the opening ceremonies in the beginning of the Beijing Olympics. It's a very long intro, so we might as well get to it. Here we go. Topic one. All right. Uh, before we get to the Olympics, let's talk football, Elliot. There was a very bad game of football played this weekend. I know you want to spend great amounts of detail going into the X's and O's of the Pro Bowl. No, I'm just kidding. Well, let's look ahead to next week. We've got the Super Bowl. No, you don't want to talk about the NHL All-Star game or the Pro Bowl game. They're just Nothing. not no. worth discussing. We are going to talk Super Bowl really quickly here. Uh, it's just the two of us. So Braden uh, does not get a say in in making his picks, but you and I are going to make our, our Super Bowl picks this week um, and just sort of tee it up. We have the Bengals. Uh, I was given some flack for occasionally pronouncing it Bengals. They are not the Bengals. They are the Bengals. Uh, let's make sure that that's clear. The Cincinnati Bengals versus uh, the Los Angeles Rams, the defensive uh, juggernaut in you know some of these powerhouse defense players on the Rams, some awesome offenses. The legend of Matt Stafford and his one opportunity here to win a Super Bowl after a very long, very good statistical career that was just snake bitten with a terrible team in Detroit. Here he finds himself on the Rams in year one, and bam, he's in the Super Bowl. And then obviously the Cinderella story of the year: Joe Burrow in his sophomore season, coming off a bad injury. I mean, he tore up his knee brings the Cincinnati Bengals all the way to the Super Bowl, their third in franchise history. They have yet to win one. Elliot, what's the biggest and most exciting storyline for you going into next weekend's Super Bowl? 
Oh, it's really tough. That's a really tough question. There's so much going on. And, and, and even just like the three things that you laid out in the start here sort of articulates that. And this is why we love Super Bowl, right? There are always a million and one. Well, there's like 300 play, players on each team. So there's so <laughs> many stories uh, throughout uh throughout these games and and, and it's what makes it fun and this extra week I I used to hate the extra week um, but I think giving the teams an extra week of rest and also you know really allowing everyone to really ingest the real relationship or digest it really quickly that the matchup is is super fun I mean I think the story for me has to be the Rams obviously playing in their home field uh, this is what the second time that that's happened. I know it's happened. This is two years in a row, but the second time that yeah. that's happened. Uh, but they also sort of like they went for it. They went all in. You always say like your team. You, you know, you have a team. You have a window. It's it's time to go for it. And they have. They've sold the farm. They've done everything they needed to do, including bringing in Matt Stafford as you said, putting their faith in him as the QB of this team. And uh, and here we are. They're they're one step away from realizing their their dream and, and their goal. And and it seems to me that there's just a lot of momentum and swinginess on their side right now. And what the story will be, either it, it can only go one of two ways. It's either they've done it, they went all in, and they win the game, or they went all in and they lost in the final game. And it, and and it's going to be so that narrative whatever way it goes uh is going to be i think the 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 main story that uh that we walk away from next week and and it's really exciting to see yeah i think you're right i mean the great part of this year's um matchup is you've got two teams that you know i think there's a lot to root for on both sides if you're a casual fan of the sport if you're if you're not a diehard Bengals or or rams fan as neither of us are i i assume uh, i know braden is much more on the cincinnati bandwagon than either of you or i are if you're looking for a good game the playoffs have done nothing but you know uh just outperform week after week how exciting this the sport can be um and it, we hope the super bowl will be the same the super bowl tends to to sometimes be a bit of a clunker after such a great playoffs like this just it's just how sometimes it goes. Let's hope not. The point, though, you got two great teams with great storylines, as you say, and and that's what's exciting. You can cheer for either one of them. We know that you know leading up to the game, there's always a thousand and one you know storylines, as as you put it, and also you know just there's going to be feature after feature after feature on every sports center and every you know network lineup that leads into the show. They're going to tell you every you know human interest story you can imagine, uh, and there's going to be lots to invest in. That's what's exciting about it. When you have a uh, kind of two teams that I don't think that it's, un, it's, it's fair to say that they didn't expect to be here. I think the Rams definitely went all in to be here, as you say, but the Bengals, this is a great surprise, you know, um, two great quarterbacks. And that's, what's also cool. Two generationally separated quarterbacks, right? We have Matt Stafford, who's let's say on the backside of his career, you know, slugged it out in a tough market in Detroit, just couldn't get the Lions over, even with some amazing weapons that he had at one point. Megatron is now a Hall of Famer and Calvin Johnson. He had some great pieces that just couldn't make it work. And now you've got this young upstart gunslinger and, and a guy who has done nothing but win at every level in Joe Burrow, right? Coming off a national championship with LSU, comes into the NFL with such promise and then gets hurt in his first season. And there's a lot of question marks about what that could have meant for his career. Those question marks are gone now. This guy is a legitimate superstar on the on the rise in a league full of superstar quarterbacks on the rise. He just happens to be the guy who's found the top of the the pyramid here, um, and it's awesome. And I think it's just really exciting. When you look you know, at it though, I, could this come down to kickers? Like, 
this every other round seems to have come down to kickers who gets the edge on kicking well this is the thing that worries me is that every game it seemed like throughout this entire playoffs have been so close we're due for a blowout one way or another we're due for a really shitty game (laughs) yeah Uh, and uh, but but just with the way that the league is, the, the level of parity, I mean, I don't think either of these two teams, you know, I think the Rams are edged uh, a little bit. Um, but, it, you know, it would be weird. I think a blow up would be uh, not as likely as as you might think it, it sort of has happened in other years. I mean, that's the thing. You got to play the game. You just never know. Uh, so I, I think the breakdown of the quarterbacks is is a great way to approach it jordan i wonder my question is uh, i think matt stafford has more around him and i wonder if that's not the difference you know when you're getting down to like your third or fourth uh, options uh is that is that not the difference maker there but heck, heck it's going to be a great game uh jordan do you do you like prop bets <laughs> yeah sure for sure my favorite the, the super bowl features what i think is my favorite prop bet in all of sports and that is what is the color of the gatorade that will be poured oh, yeah. on the that's always a good one. The super bowl? you know what my favorite prop is Which? how long the national anthem takes oh that's the good one too. that's the other one there's always a timer on how long whoever the anthem singer is and how many extra little trills they add to the you know and the home of the brave <laughs> That's a good so one. right now, right now, odds for Gatorade, uh, you, you, the, the 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 worst bet is orange at plus two hundred and ten, uh, wow. lime green yellow second at plus three fifty, clear and water clear or water is at three fifty, blue and red at four and five hundred, and then purple the least likely. At, so how uh, how how much do you think these people who are really invested in these prop bets spend? You know, like trying to get a hold of the. Uh, water boy on said team to find out what the preferences of the players on the Rams or the Bengals has been throughout the season. Here's the thing with the Bengals, you know, it's going to look better if it's orange. So that's one of the things is that they've never had this happen in, in history where the, the, the Gatorade actually went Matches. with the colors. So that is not a bad output, a uh, bad bet this year. Orange is the most likely one and, and could match, but that would also mean the Bengals won. And yeah, right. Do you want to bet on that? So, anyway, uh, sports betting is just ridiculous. So, and, what was the favorite? What was the favorite? The favorite's orange at plus uh, two hundred and ten. So, yeah, right. Okay. Place your money right. on that. Right. And least likely is red or purple at five hundred. Five to one. Interesting. I wonder what the history of those are. All right, give, let me give you another interesting storyline here because we've got them full. And you know, it's funny. I listened to on a different podcast, Al Michaels, who's going to call the game. Um, uh, he, I think, I believe it's his tenth Super Bowl which is awesome. But, uh, you know, one of those classic American voices of football. Uh, he was talking about how, you know, they go into every one of these games with the most unbelievable amount of preparation, right? The, the, the writers and the team behind, you know, them with the networks have put together cue cards for every possible scenario, every player, there's history on them going back to, you wouldn't believe. And obviously more information on the more common players you're gonna have to talk about. They know everything about Stafford and Burrow and whatever. Uh, but they go down the list, you know, and he was talking about remembering play uh, the, the Super Bowl with the, the Seahawks and the Patriots and that great catch at the end by Butler. Butler was like a backup player and they're digging through cue cards to try to find something about this guy who had just won them the Super Bowl. Right. But they've got everything. Here's an interesting one that I just pulled out at random and I think is interesting. Andrew Whit- Whitworth, who's one of the Rams. Uh, oldest offensive tackles he spent most of his career in cincinnati right a guy who toiled away when cincinnati was terrible um and he's probably the last 
sort of active bridge in the league between when the Bengals were at their worst, like five, six, seven years ago and today. So that's an interesting storyline. He's got his opportunity with the Rams. And ironically, his first chance at a Super Bowl is going to be against the team that he toiled away with as an offensive tackle for years and years. And then the other one I think we mentioned on the last show, which maybe we can finish off with here. It's always a quarterback battle, but it's also always a coaching battle. And we got a great storyline with Sean McVay, who's this superstar young, you know, sort of um, next generation coach that took his team to the Super Bowl a few years ago and just wasn't able to win it. And now he's facing off against um, Zach Taylor, who is his protege. One of these young guys who came out of his development as an assistant coach. He's a little bit older than him, but regardless, they used to be on the Rams team together. So when you look at the coaching matchup, who do you give the edge to? Um, I think, yeah, again, you have to circle back to the Rams. I, I mean, I, I think they've had the most consistent success uh, for of the two teams. Uh, they've built to this, whereas um, Cincinnati feels a little bit like, well, they were, they were the underdog in every, <laughs> every game up until then. I think we picked them one as a collective group once. Uh, maybe we got them twice, uh, once and then you. And, and, and so I think in terms of that consistency and having shown and proved, proven it, uh, you have to give the coaching edge to the Rams. Um, yeah, but it's one game. That's the thing, right? Yep. You never know what's yep. going to happen. Uh, you know, that every trick table plays on the, uh, on the table, uh, there, these teams will have watched every bit of film on each other. So they're going to be bringing new things. Yeah. And sometimes it's about uh, picking the right play at the right time in the right situation. Uh, and it could go either way, right? We yeah. could be talking about, um, you know, a, that a play like that being a real um, a momentum changer in the game. And yeah, great. Well, and as you said last week too, I think that, you know, we, we, we credited the Rams with a very good game against the 49ers, but the 49ers also did themselves no favors, especially there in the second half. And when you look at the one mistake you could say Sean McVay made during that game, it was, he made a couple really bold choices to challenge plays and gave up timeouts. He lost two of them. And then they had to call an early timeout because of a personnel issue. And he went into that final, you know, half of a quarter without any, opportunity to stop the clock had he needed to luckily for him jimmy garoppolo and and the 49ers just didn't have enough in the tank to figure out a way to get close but we know joe burrow has come down the stretch here multiple times in the playoffs and looked really good so it would be interesting to see if sean mcveigh is as is as cavalier with his challenges in the super bowl uh i mean obviously you've got nothing left to lose you got to throw everything at them but if you get caught with some early opportunities to lose some timeouts that could be something to watch for i don't know if it'll happen again but you never know Controlling the clock is always key in the NFL. It's very different from the CFL in that way. And the only way to do it is really through play calling to some extent, but really it's timeouts. The one thing I will say at the edge, the Rams are an incredibly disciplined team too. Yes, they are. And and that I think, uh, you know, that will be something to watch. Maybe that's a differentiator in terms of number of penalties that they take, uh, particularly like the dumb offside ones and procedures and things like that. Like, uh, uh, you know, if there's, if there's one advantage there from from coaching, I'd look at it's it's probably how well disciplined the Rams are this year. So let's um just before we make our picks, really quickly, how on a scale of like one to five, how likely are you to sit and actually watch the halftime show, considering it is some old uh, rap and hip hop legends instead of sort of uh, modern day pop something other. You've got you've got uh, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre, Kendrick Lamar, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. How, yeah. how, uh, how does that boy from the nineties feel about that? 
Well, I think, you see, it's sort of interesting because we, we, we sort of have a Super Bowl tradition in the house where my dad and sister want nothing to do with the game. And so don't watch the game or don't invest in the game whatsoever, but then do come out for the halftime show. And that's when my mom and I will go away and prepare dinner and then bring it up. <laughs> so I will have like a weird, I am actually more inclined to watch it this time. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's always surprises at Super Bowl halftime shows too. So I'm sure. very interested to see that. And this is sort of a nod to diversity and, and, uh, and, and it's not, a not so subtle one indeed but i wonder if there isn't uh, a controversial statement or two made uh that, uh, <laughs> that that comes across look it wouldn't be a great super bowl unless there was some controversy around the halftime show let me just say that okay let's make our predictions here we don't have Braden to make a prediction so he doesn't get a say maybe he can shout it out on twitter but you and i are going to go for this uh i will go first because i made my prediction two rounds ago I said the LA Rams were going to be in the Super Bowl and I said they were probably going to win it. I stand by that. Sam Darnold, Vaughn Miller, uh, just a terrifying defense that when they are on their game is hard to play. They're going to pressure Joe Burrow. I think it's probably the best defense he'll have seen in the playoffs. And I stand by that. I also think offensively, Matt Stafford has looked really, really good. He has that experience level. Now, no, he has never been in this game. I know that, but neither of these quarterbacks have. I still like the advantage he's at home you know he'll probably be able to hear the, the the his team will be able to hear his snap count a little bit easier hopefully uh it is a loud building but you know i think he'll be in a better shape than he was last week when he had a lot of 49ers fans in there making it harder on him uh i'm sure there'll be Bengals fans but not as many and then you've got the best wide receiver in in the league in, in cooper cup out there to make some big catches and then nodell beckham jr who's looked good through the playoffs too he's got threats he's got offensive uh, and defensive going, and you've got a great coach in Sean McVay who's been here once before and once been really bad. I stand by my pick. It's the Rams winning the Super Bowl. Elliot? Yeah, I, I think that that's, you know, I, I think for all those reasons, that's that's the safe pick. I'm going to go with Cincinnati. And the reason why I'm going to go with Cincinnati is because I think the Rams have been a little bit too consistent throughout the playoffs. Uh, things have gone a little too well for them. And I wonder, you know, the 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 game in and of itself, the longer halftime show, there will be just things that will get in the way of the consistency that they've gotten used to. And I wonder if that team doesn't face a little bit of adversity, uh, if maybe Cincinnati might not surprise us all and, and pull it out. So I'm going to take Cincinnati. But uh, what, the way I see this game going is Cincinnati getting ahead early. Uh, and then the Rams tighten it up close, and then it's a coin flip at the end. All right. Well, we've each got one, so one of us will win and one of us will lose. But uh, hopefully we both win on the halftime show. I hope it's as good as we all hope it will be. And either way, let's just hope for a good game. Let's, are we going to no pick the Gatorade or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's pick the Gatorade. What's your? I, 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 I personally think uh, I'm going to go with uh, blue. I'm going to go with clear slash Water? Water? Oh boy, what's the line on water? Uh, like, anymore? It's it's about the same as blue. Like this is all a crapshoot, Jordan. <laughs> okay, copy that. I take blue. Elliot takes clear. <laughs> Good old high quality H two O, and uh, we'll go with that for now. All right, that's topic one. 
Hey, if you're a fan of Hattrick Sports, then I promise you, you are going to love the Backyard Basketball Podcast. Hattrick's very own Braden Dollar Coltman sits down every Wednesday with his best bud, Christian Steck. And together, they break down all the news, rumors, transactions from around the basketball world. Whether it's the NBA or college hoops, these two guys love talking basketball, and you are going to love listening every Wednesday on the Backyard Basketball Podcast. All right. Topic two uh, is actually going to lead us into our great conversation with Alicia Rissling at, uh, in our third block. But let's just quickly talk about the Olympics ourselves. They are underway in Beijing, China. The uh, Olympic opening ceremonies taking place in the middle of the night on Friday. If you're watching it in local time, that is always a struggle. We did talk about that previously. Like it's hard when the Olympics are in Asia or they're, they're somewhere sort of around the globe because it makes it harder to watch things live when they're in prime time. Luckily, you know, we do get that window of time if it's a morning event in like local chinese time it would be a morning event but we get you know they start to pick up on tv around like 5 p.m or 6 p.m uh here in north america so sometimes you get something uh to watch early but uh yeah it's it's kind of its own struggle but anyway they are underway look lots of controversy always uh as there always is around the olympics china human rights issues we we've heard about it we know about it the the genocide of the uyghurs going on the un has declared it as such and so there's lots of things that go into this the olympics have always been political they're always attached to it but i think that um you know I, for me personally I, we had a similar issue in the summer the challenge i think that that i have with it and maybe elliot you want to speak to this for yourself but the challenge with the olympics is always that like it is the pinnacle of athletic um, competition for so many very unique sports that we don't see in a lot of other places, obviously, um, just in the mainstream, we do see the big sports get to be there: basketball in the summer and hockey goes in the winter and, and those kind of sports. And if you're in Canada, you know, we watch a lot of curling and whatnot throughout the year. However, the Olympics are special in that there's a lot of these athletes who have dedicated themselves to these sports and it's, it's the pinnacle, right? It's very hard for these athletes to compete with it. Alicia will talk about this in our, in our interview. She, you know, she talks about the struggles that athletes have gone through to get to this place. And then that juxtaposed with the political bureaucratic part of the Olympics as a, you know, as a business and as a sponsorship led organization is it, it, it can be kind of uncomfortable sometimes, I think, to unpack. How are you feeling about the Olympics right now, Elliot? Are you excited to watch the Olympics? Do you feel kind of mixed about it? Where, where are you on the Olympics right now? I think if you hadn't sent a text message on Friday uh, about this show and reminded me that the Olympics were going on, I wouldn't have actually known that they were taking place. Wow. And I think that speaks to my level of apathy around these games on a bunch of different fronts. I mean, one I think is, uh, you know, we just got done with the summer Olympics and, and I, yeah, know, timing wise it's weird, right? Yeah. It's weird. Right. Some of some of it's that, uh, I think the time difference does, uh, a number on interest in general for me and, 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 you know, and it's just a challenge, right? Nothing you can do about it, but the diff, the, the yeah. time difference does really impact things. Not being able to watch things live, uh, or waking up to news, you know, just not that interesting. Uh, I think the lack of NHL participation has really damaged my interest in, in the games as well. Uh, you know, that was best on best. It's the best hockey. Uh, there's always great stories, amazing rivalries uh, that has fallen away and disappeared. Hmm. And then on top of that, layered, layered on this is, is sort of this immense frustration that these games are occurring at all uh given you know the, the state of health and safety in our world 
And they're occurring in a place that is literally committing genocide on a people right now. Uh, and, and, and this expectation that we all just like turn a blind eye, well, this autocratic state uh, is 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 using these games as a PR boost for for uh, a country with with an awful human rights record that's only gotten worse, and and so all of those things lumped together have really impacted my interest or care or desire to 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 partake or even talk about these games or be engaged with them. I mean, I forced myself to turn on the TV today because I knew we had a show tonight. But that's not generally how I've looked at the Olympics, particularly Winter Olympics in the past. Generally, it's been something I've been excited about. I am not there. And I don't know if this is, um, you, you know, and, and it's just because of the Madrid of different issues related to it. And, and, and like, I, 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 I take your point. And in fact, I, I think I delivered a very similar point six months ago or eight months ago yep. when we were talking about the Summer Olympics. Uh, but even to the extent of supporting amateur athletes in in these games, it's that is, you know, there is that is a laudable goal and something to be thinking about. But even for me, I struggle to justify it, even with that as a great excuse to watch because of just the horrendous situation that we're in. No one wanted to host these games. They basically had to give them to China. Like there's and and and, and I'm just I'm at this point in history. We're having a really serious debate and there's a rivalry emerging between autocratic states and democratic states and why we would give uh, a nation like China an opportunity to sort of, oh, just look the other way for a little bit because they're hosting a sporting event for me. I just, I, I, I'm, I'm really struggling to find a justification for it. And it's definitely impacting my viewership. And I bet you, I bet you viewership, uh, you know, across Canada, is down. The other thing I just want to say, and I know I've been going for a while here, but watching it today, the Olympics are basically unwatchable. They are packed full of commercials. You're, you spend as much time watching, you know, the Toyota Olympic car commercial as you do the actual games and events that are going on. Uh, clearly, the broadcasting is disrupted by uh, COVID. They do their best, and there's some old names that have been around for a long time that are sort of your Olympic people you know, for CBC, I think of like Armitage and others, but even still like it, the product itself is virtually unwatchable because so much of the resources, the time resource is devoted to advertisement and there's advertisement everywhere. It's, that was just for me today, forcing myself to turn it on. And just like, I spent half the time watching commercials. I was like, what are we doing here? Well, okay. So there's a few things to unpack. I'm not going to argue with you too much on the politics side of it. Cause I think I've, I've been, pretty upfront about saying i think that the olympics and the olympic movement has uh, a myriad uh, uh, of problems a madrid i believe of problems i've never heard that term but i like it i think uh, it's problems. myriad i think I, I can i confuse the city and the and, and oh, okay okay the well madrid is fun too anyway regardless they have i mean look it's a corrupt and very messy organization just as fifa is just as you could argue most professional sports in north america are certainly uh, in their own ways, right? Because again, they're run predominantly with money. And that goes to what you're talking about with the television part of it. I think to be fair, you know, we just spend a good 15, 20 minutes talking about a football game that's going to be about at least 60, 40 commercials when you watch it in the end. Prior. But the commercials are actually good in the Super Bowl. <laughs> okay, so well, the quality of the advertising aside sports is expensive to put on television let's just let's just agree on that it's it, i agree with your point 
I just think, you know, well, we're living in 2022. We should be expecting the half. The, look at the best part is most of it's at night. If you PVR, you can skip all the commercials. That's what I've been doing. It's great. I've watched commercial free snowboarding and figure skating and whatever else. I said it off the top and I, and I do want to stand by it. I believe that it is more and more evident that there is a dichotomy between what the idealism of the Olympic movement is and the reality of what the Olympic movement is. There is a huge gap there, right? We are talking about amateur sport, a lot of athletes who are sacrificing a lot to get to these places. You know, you're bringing up hockey and you're bringing up other sports where, again, these people, predominantly the men, get a lot of infrastructure supporting them. We just don't see that in these other sports, right? We're going to, like I said, again, you know, we're talking to an athlete in moments from now in the third topic who in their sport, they are not only the athlete, but they are their own driver. They are their own technician. They have to maintain and build the bobsled. In her case, you had to buy her own bobsled. You know, these are people who have dedicated themselves to a pursuit of something that is so fleeting. Most of them will only ever get to one Olympics. So for me, I really have, I think, gotten to a place where I am comfortable separating the two because I'm thinking about it in two different ways. I agree with you. China should never have had these games. It's fascinating when you look at it from like a geopolitical perspective. I, don't, I assume you didn't watch the opening ceremonies because of this. I watched the opening ceremonies and the dichotomy between the grandiose sort of over the top monolithic opening ceremonies we saw only a few years ago when Beijing hosted the summer games. Fascinating to see the difference in like the political visual language of this games everything was about minimalism there was no military element there was no big huge scale production there was a lot of projection and a lot of video content but it wasn't the sort of massive i don't know like patriotic act that the last one we saw was and i think that that's intentional i think china is aware that the eyes are on them and they are definitely using this as a propaganda tool to say look at how much softer and more sort of like you know aware of our global image we are i get that that's politics right but i think for me as a canadian who has all has gone through a bit of a struggle with my own patriotism recently to try to figure out what it means to be Canadian and to be patriotic about a country that has a lot of skeletons in the closet that they are, that we are becoming more and more comfortable discussing, I think. And even still not, I mean, we've got truckers and protests going on across this country that are continuing to sort of stoke division. I think that there is an opportunity in the Olympics to focus in on the personal side of it. So let me just give you one example, right? After the opening ceremony, CBC uh, aired a, a brief interview with an athlete named Jennifer Hockrig, okay, who's a 25-year-old uh, snowboarder, grew up uh, just outside Toronto. And you know they shared a story of her having written herself a letter when she was in grade seven. She wrote herself a letter. They were, you know, it was a class project where you basically wrote yourself a letter you were going to read when you were in grade 12. Sort of where do you think you'll be and what your ambitions are? And, you know, and she wrote, I'm in grade seven right now. I can't wait till the rest of the year goes by. I'm on the field hockey team and I'm going to try out for the volleyball team. Outside school, I play hockey, snowboard race, soccer, and basketball. My dream is to go to the Olympics, but it probably won't happen. That's what she wrote for herself. This is a woman who is at her very first Olympics. This is a lifelong dream. She graduated from high school, went into the, the national uh, you know, program development program for, for snowboarding. She has worked really, really hard to get to where she is. And she's at the Olympics. I'm incredibly proud 
of her sacrifice to get there. I watched this interview and they surprised her by bringing on her parents. Now I'm the parent of a young kid and it hit me maybe differently this year than it's ever hit me before. But I watched the pride and the joy that these two parents had sharing a lifelong dream with their daughter, right? And I think what's hard is that dream is sincere. That dream is legitimate. It should be recognized and celebrated. And I am proud of all of the athletes who have dedicated themselves to that from every country, you know, and there's amazing stories. This is just one. You can go through every single one of them. There's a journey to get there, right? With maybe the exception of like Eric Stahl, who had a great NHL career and just happened to not be on a team and is captain of the hockey team because the NHL yeah. didn't go. Maybe with the exception of that, yeah. regardless, most of these people are, are, are competing completely in obscurity for most of their yeah. lives. And I'm proud of them for that. So for me, I think I'm, Maybe I'm rationalizing. Maybe that's maybe maybe I'm doing some kind of compartmentalizing like we did talk about recently on another show. But for me, I'm proud of them. And I want to I want to share in their joy and excitement and, and their journey. And, and, and I think your points are well made. And, and, and I wouldn't you know, I, I don't my intention is not to knock you for 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 your position on it and wanting to engage it because, uh, you know, I do. Yeah, I mean, you spoke to an Olympic athlete today, right? Like there is a. Um, you know, that's a really unique and special thing. And clearly, you know, in order to make it to the Olympics, uh, like you said, like you have to decide from a very early age that this is something that you want to do and this is something. I guess for me, and I don't know if this is Elliot, but it, it feels like it's more societal where the games don't hold the cachet that they used to. I think we're starting to see through it. Uh, in in really meaningful ways based on where they're hosting their games the relationship with money and sponsorship um and and also just the the vibe and attitude but i don't know that it means the same thing that it used to and I, you know it's interesting you mentioned being a dad because my next question was to you was that if you were fit you know is that if if your child came to you and said, I want to be an amateur athlete and this, I want to go and compete in the Olympics. Is that something that you would want for your child now? And, and I won't speak for you, but I'll speak for me in my place. I don't know that I'd want them to do it. Not just because of the hardship with the financial burden, um, but because it's chasing a glory that I don't think exists anymore or, or, or that is going away. And I think the games have lost the plot. And unfortunately, and, and, and you know, our our athletes, I I they are they are they are remarkable people. And these are they're 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 achieving a lifelong dream just by even being there. And 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 I and I don't want to knock them for that. That's I, I I this is not directed towards them. But I just don't know that the games mean what they used to mean anymore. They, they, they it was always a little bit hokey about bringing countries together together in sport but it seemed to mean a lot more that seemed to mean a lot more before and now it's about which country can we take for the most money to build venues so that we can hold this thing so that we can all get rich and i just don't feel the same attachment to the games anymore and i don't think that their culture is relevant and 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 i think that's unfortunate for the participants um they're the ones that are hurt the most in that and but that's how I feel. And I think there's lots of people that are feeling that way. Yeah. And I don't know. I think it's interesting. I think that, 
I don't know if I agree that it has lost something. I think that it has definitely shifted and perhaps the conversations have shifted because of just where we are as a society or in, in North America, what the other things that we're prioritizing. And that's probably a good thing. I, do, I don't think that it's bad that the perspective on, on the games has changed that maybe a little bit of sort of the like fake veneer of the quote unquote Olympic movement has, has come off a little bit and we're a little bit more critical of it. I think there's value in that. But again, I think that there's a couple different parts of it, you know, like, and I, and maybe you're right. Maybe we can't separate them, but maybe, maybe that's okay. I don't know. I, I think back to the, even Vancouver. And I remember like in the lead up to the Vancouver Olympics, even in this country, there was this real sort of struggle with um, like admitting that like it was okay to be patriotic and it was okay to support our team. And I remember, and this is so strange, but I remember Stephen Harper at the time, who was the prime minister coming onto the floor of the house of commons and actually like, you know, declaring a, uh, an opportunity, you know, encouraging Canadians to, to, to let go a little bit of their traditional politeness and, and show a little bit more emotion and, and, and support. And over time of the, as the games progressed, I think people did that because there were some great storylines and there was some, some opportunity. I think that there's an opportunity in the big ideal of the Olympics for it to still be a unifying thing. I just think that you're right, that there's this huge contradiction occurring because we're seeing the problems more evident. Here's what I would offer back. I think that there is some evidence to suggest that, that change is coming. The challenge is always like these things are scheduled half a decade before they end up going somewhere, right? There's no way, um, there's no way to sort of change it once the cycle started. Unfortunately, a decision was made, as you said, maybe there was no one else who wanted it. Beijing gets the games. And of course, that's where we're going. Same as, as it was with Sochi, Sochi, which was clearly also a political move by Putin and, and, the, and the Russians. This is Xi Jinping's opportunity to sort of use the, the, the platform of the Olympics. But, you know, we've heard recently that there is a bid being developed here in Canada to bring the Olympic Games back to Vancouver, Whistler and Squamish. And it's being 100 percent led by uh, indigenous leaders. It's going to be an indigenous bid, not a national bid, not a Canadian bid. It's got a little bit of obviously support from the province because, you know, it's on their uh, some of their lands. And there's, a, you know, there's the financial elements that go into that. But the the nations of the Squamish, the Musqueam and, and, and Tsleil-Waututh are working together as a as a organizing committee to actually put forward Canada's first indigenous bid. And I think that that's a really fascinating uh, story to see how it unfolds. And if that's the future of where these games go, where opportunities for minority groups and opportunities for parts of, you know, quote unquote nations that haven't been represented properly, get that opportunity. You know, there was obviously a lot of criticism when the Olympics were here in Vancouver, that the indigenous population wasn't included enough. And here's an opportunity for them now to, to own that. That's fascinating to me. That's the opportunity that's there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess I'll just put that, put that back out there uh, as we, as we sort of round this out. And yeah, we, you know, for me, um, I, I think I do. I, I just separate both parts of it. I, I, I think that the athletes, I don't know. I don't think the athletes have ever been given enough of a voice to really be equal partners in, in how this goes. That's part of it too, but that's maybe why I'm also more sympathetic um, to their side of it. Yeah. And again, I, my criticisms are not certainly not level at the athletes. No, no. Um, and I know, you know that, but I want to reiterate it. And I think your final point there around, you know, an indigenous led games, there's an opportunity there for sure. But then I think back, well, so then we're putting like an indigenous community, uh, you know, to the same, we're holding them to the same stature of, you know, an autocratic uh, genocide committing regime. 
And we, you know, we're equating those two things is, it, it, with the similar value. And I guess some of this for me is like where have the last few games been held? I mean, Japan was Japan, right? So that's different. But, you know, I, I'm thinking about Sohi or <laughs> Sochi <laughs> and, uh, and Russia and, and now China and, and just the, the role that they're playing in the international realm. I, but that's I not new, that, Elliot. That's not new. Berlin hosted but, the games yeah, when I mean, the Nazis like, we were all in control. Like, this is what I mean. Like, even when it was, even when we were talking about Russia, I mean, we, we were having an ongoing conversation while Putin was saying there's no gay people in Russia and anyone that is should be killed. No, and I, you know, and I agree also, with you. And, and it's like, you know, like, I, like Canada's not perfect, but come on. Like, this is, yeah. you know, this is, so I, I, I get that. I get that. I just really struggle I think the games have lost their stature with me. And, and I think that's probably coming out in this, in this, in this conversation with anything. And I don't know that I am not part of a substantial minority, if not majority of, uh, of people who used to be really invested in the games. I just do not have uh, the same interest and it hurts the, the ultimately it hurts the athlete. Uh, and I know that in saying that, but I just, I'm really struggling with this one. And I, you know, some of this is, Part of that conversation from a week ago or two weeks ago around the compartmentalization like uh, if i'm going to be start calling things a spade a spade then i need to be consistent in that and then i have some harder choices that i need to make around my investment in nfl football investment in the nhl I mean, we're not even get to the chicago blackhawks this week you know no. uh, and mlb and all these other things as well too um and so I, I recognize that as well but maybe it's 2022 maybe it's just this week I'm in a bad mood, but I just, I'm just not, <laughs> just not there. Well, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll finish it this way. Cause you did also talk about whether or not I'd feel comfortable with my son wanting to pursue, you know, an Olympic sport and, and I'll, I'll put it this way. This is the first time I think he's been old enough to be able to like watch or understand what's going on. And we've had the TV on and you know, the, the one thing I do love about the Olympic broadcast aside from the commercials is that if you flip it on and just leave it on, you're going to get a whole bunch of little tastes of different things. Right. And if you aren't a avid curler fan or an avid figure skating fan, you just get a little taste of it. You don't necessarily know who the athletes are and you follow along. Curling was on. Lowen walks in the room and he goes, daddy, what's that? And I said, that's curling. It's a sport. And he watches it for about five, 10, 15 seconds. And he looks at me, and goes, no, they're cleaning. <laughs> Cause all he sees is a couple of guys with brooms, you know, polishing the ice. And I thought yeah. what beautiful innocence that he's being introduced to completely new sport. And his first perspective is they're doing housework. Anyway, that's, that's my anecdote and my little positive <laughs> note for us to end it on for you. Um, well, I mean, I, I appreciate your candor. I appreciate your honesty. I think that's important. We've always done that on this show. And I guess we'll see what happens maybe in a week and a half. You know, we'll, we'll be talking about the Olympics again and you'll have, I'll have Canada tattoos on my forehead. <laughs> you'll be fully invested as, as the, you know, unknown male hockey team gets to the gold medal game or something under the leadership of, you know, NHL legend, Eric Stahl. Uh, all right. Well, in a moment, we'll have our conversation with Alicia. Uh, it's a great conversation about what it's like to be an athlete. And I think it is very on point for the conversations we've been having and sort of the, the perspectives of, of, I don't know, just the separation of what, what it takes to actually get to that level of competition. Um, Cause I don't think, I think you'll agree with me, Elliot, that regardless of the politics of it, the Olympics is still the pinnacle for most of these sports. And I think that that's still, you know, that still holds true. All right. That's topic two. Hey, topic three this week is brought to us by Roma pizza and Donaire. 
We all know that the best thing about Edmonton is the many Donaire options. And I know if you're like me, it can be overwhelming and stressful trying to hunt down the best. Well, my friends, we have found it and it's time you did too. Roma Pizza and Donaire in Westbrook Aspen Gardens is Edmonton's best kept secret. There's nothing quite like piping hot meat getting shaved and served with a generous ratio of sweet sauce. And look, I know someone out there is saying, yeah, no, that's not really my thing. Well, hold your horses, because there is more. Roma Pizza and Donaire not only serves Edmonton's best Donaire, but they also offer Roma pizzas, dinner platters, chicken wings, chicken fingers, chicken nuggets, chicken tawook, burgers, salads, subs, baklava, coconut cake, and with summer right around the snow-covered corner, they also have summer specials, deep-fried pickles and deep-fried Oreos. But hey, don't take my word for it. Sometimes tasting is believing. To order, call them at 780-944-9696. That's 780-944-9696. They're open every day except Sunday from 11 until 11 and open till midnight Friday and Saturday. You can also follow them on Instagram at Roma Pizza Donaire. Okay, so as promised, a uh, very special guest here joining us for the third topic of Hattrick this week. I have Alicia Rissling, who is an Olympian, a Canadian Olympian. She was in the 2018 Games. She joins us from Calgary. Uh, first off, thanks so much for being here, Alicia. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. So I gave a little tease off the very top of the show uh, about sort of your CV, um, but just for those who may have just jumped ahead in the show because they were excited to see you as a guest here, mm-hmm. um, you are a bobsled athlete from Canada who has been to the Olympics, um, recently, unfortunately, suffering an injury that I know held you back from training for a couple, uh, for about a year, and then of course COVID and all of that, and unfortunately just missing out on being in the Olympics this year. We will talk about that. I'm sure that that's very disappointing. However, what an amazing accomplishment um, or a, an accomplished career you've had. I went back and looked through, and I know that you know you you've you're you've become an ambassador for the sport, ambassador for women in the sport, um, but you're also just a decorated athlete to begin with. We'll get to all of that, hmm. um, but. But let's go back just just to the beginning. I know you come from an athletic family. You know, your brother's a hockey player. I know your dad was a hockey player. You've got family members and everything. Growing up for you, um, sports was really an important part of life, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, my my dad's side of the family were were huge sports freaks. So my grandpa's in the South Alberta slow pitch or fast pitch hall of fame. Sorry. Um, my grandma was in the ice cage. She was a traveling um, ice dancer. Um, oh, wow. So I was on skates from two years old and my dad played pro hockey, he played uh, in the it was called the IHL back then. And yeah, they right. played pro in 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 Europe and Uh, My little brother, of course, played for the Hitman for five years and then played in the pro in through the farm systems in the US and then played a year overseas as well. And now he's playing for Nate. So um, I'd say I'm more of a hockey family first, but um, unfortunately, I didn't play hockey. It was like the one sport that I begged to play that they didn't put me in. Um, they put me in everything else and I played everything else all the way through uh, high school where I had scholarship offers in four different sports. Yeah. And I know you ended up going to the University of Alberta for basketball and track. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. They gave and you guys got all the way to a, a national championship. Did you not? My first year we lost in the national final by four still hurts. Wow. I bet <laughs> and it we does, went to the but, tournament three out of five years as well. But so like what? Pretty, I mean, just an amazing accomplishment there. Right. And I, 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 I correct me if I'm wrong, but, but like bobsleigh was never on your sort of like list of, of life goals growing up as a kid. Was that, was it a sport that you, were interested in or did that kind of come later? 
women didn't compete in the Olympics in bobsled until 2002. So absolutely was never on my radar. I never even heard of it. I knew nothing about it. Um, and it, it like, I, I didn't watch cool runnings until I was older. I don't know why, <laughs> how I missed out on that one. Um, but yeah, no, it was definitely nothing that even crossed my mind until, uh, it would have been, you know, 2010 when, um, they did, a uh, an identification camp with some of the track and field athletes at U of A. And I just happened to be, I wasn't on the track team anymore. Cause I had quit just to focus solely on basketball. And, um, I kind of asked if I could go through the thing and the, the ID camp, and then Canada went on to do incredibly well in the 2010 Olympics. And I was like, Oh, we're good at this sport. Maybe this is something that'd be kind of cool to do. Totally. Going back to 2002 for a second, I have another family connection with you. I know we mentioned off the top of the show that I know your father, mm-hmm. but I believe I was in the room with your dad when you were with Kevin Lowe's kids when mm-hmm. they won the gold medal. Were you babysitting their kids that night when the men won the gold medal? Do you remember that? Um, in 2010? No, in 22. Oh, 2002. Oh, 100% Salt Lake Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I was like, because in 2010, all the kids were in. in no, exactly. No, no, no. Salt Lake yeah, City, they win their first gold, right? I was with your dad. Yeah. He was so excited. And I remember he actually called. He may have called you, but he ended up calling Kevin uh, out there watching the, the, the Olympics. So, you you know, goes back to that, that you've been around mm-hmm. the, the Olympics, even if you didn't know you were going to end up there right from the beginning, eh? Yeah, I've been around a lot of it. I've been very fortunate to have some pretty incredible role models. So let's jump back into your career. Once you once you sort of realized bobsleigh was an actual option or or as a sport you wanted to pursue, what was that journey like? How did you transition from being a basketball player and a track athlete? Like, how does one become a bobsledder? Um, so every single person who enters the sport of bobsled has a very unique story because again, it's not a sport you grow up doing unless you're like your family's deep into it. And there's a couple athletes on tour. There's a German and an American that like kind of like our bloodline of bobsledders, but. Um, everyone else kind of like gets thrown into it from something else. So we have a lot of players that come from football backgrounds, uh, a lot from rugby, and then a lot from track and field. Those are kind of the top three in Canada, especially that get recruited. Um, the American will recruit military, um, and like special ops, which are, cause they're all like in like fantastic peak condition. Um, but the crazy thing about bobsled is you have to be kind of be this unicorn because you have to be as fast in the first 30 meters as a hundred meter sprinter, but you have to be as strong as the strongest Olympic weightlifter there is because we're pushing a, a bobsled that weighs like 400 pounds. So, um, I, I always like was a power athlete. Like I, in basketball, I was not the best shooter. I was, I was an all around good athlete. Um, and I had the I love training. Like I loved lifting weights and I love sprinting. So like this, that kind of correlated really well for me. And that's why I wanted to get in, but my journey wasn't easy because I entered the sport. I graduated from university and I took actually a year off and I applied to get into a master's program first that I didn't get into. It was med school. Um, and, uh, I needed a new goal. So I needed something to focus on. And I had actually not been in a gym in 14 months when I first did my, my first initial Alberta bobsled recruitment camp. Um, so I spent a year as a brakeman with team Alberta. And that was more like a year of like learning about the sport. I had to learn how you went and lost races. I had to learn how you took care of the, the sleds. I had to learn like everything. I knew nothing about it other than you just go down in a bobsled track, like down a track. That's all I knew. 
Um, and I just fell in love with it in the first year. And that's when I really decided that if I was going to commit some time and effort into this and I wanted to become an Olympian, um, I was going to have to do it from the front seat because I knew I was never going to be the fastest or strongest athlete that comes out to this program. It just wasn't in my genetics. So, um, I was going to have to learn the skill of actually driving the sled and that would kind of more give me a better opportunity to qualify my sled for the Olympics. Um, so the next year I was on team Alberta again, and I was just learning how to drive the sled and I practiced and practiced and practiced. And then, uh, the next year I came back and I actually got myself finally into some sort of physical conditioning so that I was able to crack the national development team and, uh, kind of just moved up the ranks from there until I was full-time on the world cup, the 2016, 17 season. So the year before the 2018 Olympics. So obviously, you know, you have to really commit yourself fully to the sport, but this isn't just an athletic sport. This is one of those sports where you have to maintain your own equipment. You've got to sort of, you know, slug it. We talk, uh, we've talked on this show a lot about sort of the struggles that some of these Olympic sports have in the off years. What mm -hmm. is it like in that in, in sort of that four year window when you're preparing between Olympics or in your case, the very first time when you were preparing for an Olympics, when, you know, you've obviously got competitions throughout all those seasons, but the Olympics is the, is the ultimate goal for a sport like bobsleigh, is it not? Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and like everyone gears up to peak in that fourth year, but it still requires so much time and effort and, and skill from the, the four years leading up to it, because we only get to do the world cup circuit is eight, eight races a year with the last race of the year being the world championships. Whereas like in an Olympic season, it's eight races and then the Olympics. So, um, there's, there's so much effort that goes into him being an amateur athlete. And I wasn't carded, which carding is the, the structure that the government helps, uh, athletes out. And so I was a development card. So that's $900 a month that didn't even cover my rent. Um, so like tr trying to travel and we, and Bob said, we have to go to where the tracks are. So of course, yeah. luckily enough, like the Calgary track was around when I was going through my development, but it's not around anymore. So now all these athletes that want to get into it, it's like, they have to go to Whistler, but they're super expensive, um, mm -hmm. to stay like you're looking at over a hundred dollars a night just for accommodations. Um, and, or you're going to park city, Utah, or you're going to Lake Placid, New York. There's so much travel that's involved. And in Europe, the very different thing is there's so many tracks that they could just drive three hours and get to a new track here. It's like, it's the closest track to drive to is 14 hours away, or yeah. I guess was there's only 12, but still you're looking like at a huge span. So that's why the Europeans are at a huge advantage for that. Um, and then, so I was trying to travel, but I was still trying to work to support myself. And I remember being on that national development team, my first year, and my team fee was $7,000. And I was on my own for food when we were on the road. And, and I, I had maxed out my credit card. I had maxed out my line of credit and I had withdrawn more, more from my bank account. And it was literally like, I still was paying rent back in Calgary and I had been on the road for three months. And I remember I was like, which family member am I going to have to call to pay my rent this month? Like, and that's when I got my first sponsorship, like it couldn't have come through at the first, like, and it was, I will never forget. It was $2,500 and I cried. Like it, it was yeah. just like, it, because it at least gave me some leeway to get through. And then I ended up getting one shortly after that. So, um, 
I worked my butt off in, I actually worked in the bars in the, in the restaurant industry because it was the most amount of money I could make in the least amount of time, but those are very physical jobs. And so trying to train full time and then going to work where I'm getting 20,000 steps in because I'm running drinks around and uh, like, and staying up till five o'clock in the morning sometimes. Yeah, tough hours, tough hours. Yeah. Yeah. And I just had to do what I had to do. But when my team expenses, I don't think there was a year that I spent less than I, I can't, I don't want to put a number on it, but I think if I look back most of the years in bobsled, I spent at least $14,000 on bobsled. And if you would have told me the, the, the cost that would have been associated, I would have never gotten into it. So I'm kind of yeah. glad I went it in blind because I just would have quit then there. Cause yeah. I was thinking about picking up hockey at when I got into bobsled and I was like, yeah. no, that's too expensive. <laughs> I didn't know that I was going to yeah. go on to purchase my own bobsled at $91,000, you know? So it just, but when you're in it that far and you're so close to your Olympic dream and you just want to prove that you deserve to be there and you want to be competitive, you do what you have to do to, and unfortunately in my sport, it's not just about your physical performance. It's also about your equipment. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great perspective that I think most people, especially, you know, in this country or frankly everywhere miss or mm-hmm. or don't think about with these these quote-unquote sort of olympic focused sports right we know mm-hmm. there's a development program that for hockey there's thousands of kids playing hockey across this country because there's a professional league and there's all these things but you think about right. the sacrifice of those athletes and we've talked on this show and other places you know like the olympics carry with them some some controversy and some baggage because of the bureaucracy and the political factors that go into this. And those shouldn't be overlooked, I think. But the, the thing we've, we've also talked about is that you have to sometimes separate the Olympics from the athletes and the reality of the struggle. Some of these athletes have gone through like in your case, financially, but also just like, you know, you, you've, you've said it, you have to dedicate yourself so deeply to a pursuit of something that you may never get to. I mean, that must've been the hardest part. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause I know you, you, you've suffered a huge disappointment this season. You're not currently in China. You're talking to us. I'm sure that that was heartbreaking, mm-hmm. but you went through a crazy journey to get even just back into shape to do that. You suffered an injury and, and, and COVID talk to me about the last two years and how we got to where we got to. Cause I know that it was, you know, again, some bureaucracy involved. <laughs> Oh, well, there always is. I mean, there's politics in every sport. So um, after 2018, then the next season, we had a home world championships and we did a really weird season. Uh, so we had a home world championships in Whistler and there is no scarier track in the world than Whistler when it's minus five and sunny. Like, it's just like, we go so much faster in Whistler than anywhere else that, um, it was, it was a tough year. And, and for whatever reason, Whistler had the coldest, crispest winter that we hosted. So we set the speed record, uh, the men's, uh, there was a a British foreman team that went 156 kilometers an hour, which is just like insane. Like you you're free falling going that fast essentially. And, and not only that in Whistler at the bottom of the track, like you have to make your steers perfect because there's a corner called 50, 50. And if you you're not perfect there, you flip and like crashing, going over a hundred and crashing at any time sucks, but crashing, going at that speed is just, it's like, it exasperates everything. Like it is, it hurts. Like, and so that season, it's funny. I had never crashed in that corner ever. In my entire career, like learning to drive sled, I, I would make mistakes. I've crashed in multiple corners, but I never crashed in 50, 50. And for whatever reason that year, I crashed seven times in that corner. And it became, um, such a, a, a big thing for me that it, it was a form of PTSD. So 
I had that going on. I got to leave the track a little bit, but then I uh, went to Europe and had some good results, had a, a gold medal on the Europa cup and, and, uh, and a bronze and um, came back and we, we were going to spend more time in Whistler because we were going to get ready to, for hosting our worlds. And um, I tore my calf, like a seven centimeter tear in my calf. And this was five weeks out from worlds. Um, I spent that whole five weeks in a, in a walking cast. And so I was not doing any sprinting. I couldn't really do any heavy lifting because that your calf, you need your calf for everything. And, um, I was just trying to heal enough so that maybe I could start outside the sled in, in the race. So that pretty much knew my world champs were over in that fact. And I did, I did push, but I got held in Whistler and I kept crashing. So that kind of messed with my mental ability. So I'd say that year, when I finished that year, like I almost quit then because I was finishing that year. I was, it was a whistle world champs. I was expected to win. Um, and I came 11th and now I have PTSD, I diagnosed PTSD and I have a, a calf that just won't seem to heal. And it, I found out after when I got an MRI later that it actually had healed, um, kind of off centered. So instead of like going exactly back where the tear was, it kind of healed at an angle. Um, so I had this like debilitating, um, uh, tendonitis, which is such a soft injury. And I see that in my thing, cause it's like such a thing, but I could not make it through a sprint workout for 14 months. Um, so now we're heading in, this is the, so we're heading into the next season and it's literally tryouts. And I never sprinted once the entire summer. I couldn't do it. Like I tried, I went to track practice every day and every day I tried and I never made it. I was going to physio three times a week. Um, my injury bill cost me $8,000 because I ran out of insurance so quickly. And I was so determined to like heal. Um, so I was doing everything. I was doing red light therapy. I was doing injections. I was doing all these things that I was paying personally out of pocket. Um, and I got told literally the week of tryouts that in October that, you know, we're going to offer you an injury card. So an injury card means we recommend you take this season off, you heal completely and you come back because if you don't come back in good form, you don't have a spot here anymore. Cause now we've got these up and comers coming and we need you to be in the best shape possible for the Olympic games. And I said, you know what, that's a good idea. It's your two of the quad. Um, let's just like kind of tear this thing down, rebuild from the foundation up and come back in the best shape ever for 2022. Enter global pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> um, no one saw that one. Yeah, exactly. So this, that was October of 2019. And then obviously we know what happened in 2020 in the winter there. And, um, so now I've got four to six months of no physio, uh, four to six months of not working directly with my coaches. And again, we, when we tore my foundation apart, like I had to relearn how to run with a different technique. Um, and, uh, so the, obviously that whole process just got slowed. Like I was, I was making great progress and then it just got slowed down. I didn't see a trainer. I was working. Luckily I had my, a gym set up in my garage. So even though it was minus 10 outside, I was in there with gloves and a toque and <laughs> mitts on still getting my lift in. And I would, film it. And then I would send it to my trainer who would get back to me three days later and we'd evaluate it. And then I'd have to remember what they said when I did that same lift again the next week. So everything just kind of got delayed. And, and so when team tryouts came, Oh, the other worst thing was I didn't push a sled because the ice house was closed and we were barred from it. Like we weren't allowed to push in the ice right. house, which is an amazing facility here. Um, so when team tryouts came the next year, I was not ready to go. And I, I fully take responsibility for that. Like I was not ready to go. Um, and, uh, then they said, you know, what? doesn't matter. We're not going anyway. 
So Team Canada said, you know, like we, they were thinking about sending us on tour anyway. We had exempt medical exemptions to go and compete. All the Europeans were competing and they just said, you know what, we're going to hold our athletes back. So now I've gone from taking a year off to taking, it ended up being 22 months between my, my international competitions. And I wasn't feeling confident getting ready to go, but you know what, this was last year. It didn't matter Mm -hmm. because it was still a year to go for the Olympics. Um, and, uh, got my races in enough to just to be qualified. You need what's called a five, three, two for this year. Um, meaning I've kind of got to keep my driver's license, my bobsled driver's (laughs) license and be eligible. Um, and I knew that the up and coming girls were going to be ready and it was going to be a battle. So I worked my butt off this year and I, I kind of threw everything I had it in it. Like I, I lost a lot of my sponsorship because I wasn't competing. So I used like, you know what, whatever debt I need to go into to afford and make sure that I'm ready to go this year, I'm not going to work because everyone else isn't working and I need to make sure that I'm ready to go. And, um, yeah, come, come the fall, we got told five days before our selections that what our selection criteria was, and it was based on push rank and I didn't have a chance anyway. So it was, uh, it was a little bit disheartening because I did feel like I was ready to go. I was, I, I was in way better shape than I was in 2018. I was the healthiest I've been. Um, I didn't quite beat my PB in, in the ice house, but I was three hundredths away, you know, like it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was not like I was way out of range. Um, and I, and that kind of just shut the door on me, but then they told me to stick around because in case somebody got sick or injured, then I was of next course, up. Yeah. yeah. So when you give someone a bone like that, like, Hey, like, okay, there's still, so you're saying there's still a chance I'm going to take it. Yeah. Um, there was no communication other than like, you can compete on the development cir- circuit and try and qualify a spot that way. And maybe you'll get a chance. And the year went by and I never got my chance. And I'm happy that those girls did really well. And I'm going to be cheering my butt off for them in in the Olympics. And I'm excited to see how they do. But it just like, it hurts when you do everything in your power to be ready. And it just still wasn't good enough, you know? Well, for sure. And as you, you know, as you explained, even just at the beginning of your career, the, the, the struggle isn't just you know, physical, it's mental, it's, it's financial, it's, it's all of mm-hmm. that time consuming. And as you know, you described that story of the last two years, I mean, how did you not just at some point throw in the towel and say, this is just too much. I could go and, you know, live a happy life, you know, just going to the gym, like every other normal person, instead of trying to, you know, rebuild my body for an elite sport that what, like the, the, how many, how many pilots do they send to the Olympics? There's, there's like three out of four of what is like, there's not that many people out of this country who are even capable of doing what you're doing and you're fighting for one spot or two spots. Yeah. So we got to send two in the brand new sport of Monobab and three in the, in two men. And, uh, this is the first time ever we've had four girls that probably, and on any given day could challenge for those spots. Yeah. Which I guess isn't a, t- it's a testament to how the sports developed, but it's frustrating mm-hmm. when you're one of those four, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like, I joked, I, I said to my wife yesterday, we were watching, uh, the, the, snowboarding uh just you know it's like the olympics you turn it on and whatever's there you kind of get a little taste of something that you don't usually watch and we're watching it in the canadian woman i think finished fifth or something oh that's so disappointing Sorry, you think yourself, no yeah. she's like fifth in the world what are you talking yeah. about she's you know that's insane when you think about the the, the scale of it i want to get to the olympics here in a second because i do want your perspective on what the women i know you know are going through but let's go back to mm-hmm. 2018 for a second you make it to the olympics what does that accomplishment mean uh it, as an athlete as a person um and and yeah just describe that for me what's it like to to get you know first to, to know you're going to go to the olympics and the anticipation of it and then to arrive there what's that feel like 
Yeah. So 2018 was the first time that Canada had ever sent three sleds. Um, so it was a pretty amazing feat for our team because we kind of did it in unison and we were all so proud of each other. And um, it meant that eight people got to go from our team instead of just five. So that was three more people, even though they they didn't compete in the races, they were still there. They still got to walk in opening ceremonies. Um, so there was eight of us that got to go and we were just so proud to be that part. I was always sitting in a good spot. I had done pretty well in that year and I was sitting like six in the world the entire season. So, um, it didn't, I, it, it was stressful. It was stressful trying to make sure we all got there and like work as a team. But, um, uh, just as soon as we got, it was official. It was just, it was an amazing feeling. It was so special. And, and going to those Olympic games, like I, it, it I feel for the people who this is their first Olympics because, the experience they're getting in China is not what the Olympics are all about. You know, like it was, it was, you know, we had 225. That was the biggest team that Canada had ever sent to the Olympics. And, and just like being in the building, screaming Canada, like we were shaking it from underneath before we got to walk in uh, those opening ceremonies. And um, I'm just watching and I, I'm so happy that those guys looked legit in, the, in that Lululemon kit, but nice. you know, you couldn't tell who anyone was cause they all got big masks on and they got their, mm-hmm. their hats down. And, and I know they were like, their elevators actually say like no talking like in the elevators. Cause they just don't want people to be like opening yeah. their mouths basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, I got my, my best friends all came out, um, and my, my family, my uncles, like I just had a, a huge cheering squad that got to be a part of it and take it all in and, and really get the full experience in Korea. And, um, so I think for me, just the Olympics, I'd say in 2018 were the best month of my life. And the mm. best part was competing and, and actually like being at the pinnacle of my sport and reaching, that was a huge goal for me is wanting to be the best in the world at something. And, um, and the next part was walking in opening ceremonies. Cause I think that for me was the, the difference maker. Like that was watching the, uh, it was the London opening ceremonies that really inspired me to be like, no, I actually really want the opportunity to, to wear that big maple leaf. And I definitely was not the kind of basketball player that was going to have that opportunity. So, um, and then the third best part I'd say was the, <laughs> Uh, four day party that ensued when I finished my, my races and just being a part of a crew of athletes that were done all their events and we were allowed to stay the whole time. So like going and cheering on other teammates and in their events and getting to take that in and just, just living, like being so high on life and just so ecstatic mm-hmm. of being a part of this group of people was just so special. Um, and, and it was just, an overall great opportunity and the Olympics will always be the Olympics. And I think that's why people are so excited. Um, but right now what these athletes are going through in Beijing, it's not even close to that. So, um, I do feel, and I hope a lot of people who are first timers will have the opportunity to go back and get the real experience next time. Yeah. So just, just on that, what is it like? So you get in there, you get to the opening ceremony, which is I'm sure just a huge party and it's super exciting. How many, you know, how many days from that point to the moment you had to be competing, do you sort of turn your focus into to game mode, let's say, and how does that window work? Yeah. So it's different. Every sport's different. So for me at the last Olympics, we only had the two women event. We did not have a monobob. Right. It's a brand new sport that's getting to be this year. Um, so I was uh, in Korea a couple days before, and this is the same schedule as these guys are doing right now, actually. So they got on the ice two days um, prior to the opening ceremony. So they had to be there uh, on the 26th. 
of, of January with the Olympics starting on the fourth. So they had to be there. They had to get these, these three COVID tests. Um, and then that was the kind of the clearance where you're like entered into the village. And then, um, they had two days of training on the ice and then nothing because now it goes luges on the ice and skeletons on the ice. And then the bobs get on later, um, next week. So I know for me, when we were there last time, I didn't compete until day nine. Um, so I, I was, uh, the first three days I had, luckily I had Heather Moyes, who is an Olympic uh, legend and she kind of laid the ground rules for us, which I really appreciated. Like she, she had been through it. She knew what was really important. So the first three days we went to events, um, there was no, and I'd say like opening ceremonies is, is, is a celebration. It's not a party. Nobody's partying because everyone hasn't competed yet, you know? So everyone's right, kind of like right. crushing on. water bottles and focused and <laughs> yes, you're taking it in, but you're, you're definitely still in athlete mode. Um, and, uh, so then the first three days of, I, we went to a couple events, like I got to see, uh, Johnny Moe and Caitlin Laws win gold, um, and, uh, went and watched the team figure skating event, which was incredible and, um, take that in. And then after three days, we just like shut it down. I competed late at night. So my races were at nine o'clock. I take about 200 milligrams of caffeine before I race. So I knew that we weren't going to be sleeping until like three or four o'clock in the morning. So we actually just got used to that. So for the first couple of days of the Olympics, I was sleeping until noon, one or 1 PM. Um, sounds lazy, but like you're doing it on purpose, right? They're trying to be strategic, getting ready for what acclimatize for what your race is going to be. Um, and then we'd stay up and we'd just watch events during the day in our PJs and our onesies and team Canada house sitting on beanbag chairs and, uh, just hanging out around the village because I, I barely had any workouts left to do because you're tapering. You're, you're already, the work has been done and you're just trying to rest and be ready to go. Um, so uh, there were a couple of days where I had uh, small workouts to do or a track warm up or something like that. And then, uh, the days that we were on the track, we were on the track all day. So you, you had to bust the 45 minutes to the track. You had to be there three hours early, um, which is earlier than you normally are. Usually we're there like two hours early. Um, you do two training runs and then you do your sled work and your sled prep and get everything ready for that. And, um, all the materials had to be rechecked. They get checked at the beginning of the season and you don't have to worry about it again, but at the Olympics, you have to recheck them again. And then you polish your runners and yeah, it's just like a process. And then you're getting ready to race. And then, so it's like 12 hour days, basically when you're on the ice and you get three days of official training before your two days of racing. So five days on the ice. Um, so that's basically like all you do. Like, I couldn't even tell you what else happened during the Olympics during those five days that I was on the ice and practicing and training just because it was like, so blinders on, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. focused on, on what I had to do. And then you spent the four days after celebrating everyone else. Yeah. And as a pilot, I know, you know, you, you must have just like a mental map of what that track is in your head. Are you seeing it when you're like sleeping? Are you, can you see Mm. every turn and every corner and what the line you want to follow is like as a pilot, it's a different kind of thing. I mean, let's just pretend people don't know anything about bobsled in your case with women's bobsled, you've got two athletes, one is pushing, one is jumping in the front and and then piloting. How do, how does it work? Let's just, let's just pretend they know nothing about bobsled. So you got to think about it. You've heard the saying, it takes 10,000 hours to perfect your craft. So like any, any sport you grew up as a kid, you're playing, you're outside for four hours shooting pucks or, or kicking a soccer ball at a garage like I did. Um, Mm. but in bobsled, you can't do that. Like you're, you're going down the track and each corner, I'm in each corner for like a second. 
So for right. me to get to 10,000 hours, it's physically impossible because the right. G forces we have in our body, like there's no way that I could have 10,000 hours of seat time in a bobsled. Like, it's just so unrealistic. Um, I don't want that much time to be honest. <laughs> um, so it, like that's where visualization comes in and the mental component of being a pilot is just so important. So that's me sometimes putting my, my computer on a, a coffee table and sitting underneath it. And so it's at eye level and watching a POV and just going through, um, if you, if you watch bobsled and you see any of the pilots in the warmups, you'll see them. They look like they're dancing with their hands. They're doing mental, mental runs. They're going down the track. They're doing their mental runs. They're, they're figuring out, you know, if they're, they're mentally mapping out, if they're going into a corner on the left side, what they're going to do versus going on the right side and fighting those pressures and feeling it. So, um, that's a huge component of what we do. I would say that absolutely. Do I do mine runs in my sleep? I do. And I hate it. And it's something that I had to work with a sports psych to make sure that I wasn't doing it because that yeah. is not the time to be doing your mind runs. That means you're stressing <laughs> yeah. it. Um, yeah. So every pilot is different in terms of like how many they do. I find that the older I got in my career and the more seat time I actually had, the less mind runs I did. But yeah. when I was a developing pilot, I was probably doing a hundred a day. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a very uh, complicated uh, vehicle, let's call it There's no steering <laughs> yeah. wheel, right? You've got some string and some blades. Like how, how, yeah. how, uh, how, how does that work? So it's a lever cable pulley system. So it's just, I pull the right rope. It turns right. I pull the left rope. It turns left. The whole thing for me is not actually about creating a steer. It's about resisting the pre the centripetal force that the sled is experiencing as it's going through. So you got to think when you're, you're in your vehicle and you're going on an on-ramp onto, onto a freeway and how you're kind of accelerating through and you can feel the, the car fight you back. Basically I'm fighting that pressure, just holding it in my hand. And I'm trying to give a little and take a little as I go. Um, the more you steer, the more friction you create, the more you actually slow the sled down. And that's what the opposite we want to do. We want to do the least amount of steering possible on the way down, but obviously you got to keep it on forerunners. So you gotta, there's a fine line. Sometimes you end up doing what we call the bow and arrow where you're pulling it all the way back, trying to save it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not complicated, but learning a track and learning where the pressure is and learning the fast way down is the, is yeah, definitely that's the, the complication part. Oh, for yeah. sure. So this is, I mean, we talked about how, how this year ended for you. Is this it for you and bobsled? Are you retiring? Uh, is this, is it, can you do that? Is, is this something you could just sort of turn off or is it, where are you at with all of it? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's kind of like people, I never actually officially announced my retirement, but it's kind okay. of been announced that I'm done now. So like, because I was relieved of my duties for not being a spare to go to, um, China here, but, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm done competing. Um, whether I return to the sport is still up in the sure. air. I've talked yeah. to a couple teams have, uh, approach me, but if I'd be interested to coach, um, and in that capacity, I would, I'm definitely open to it. I'm not saying I'm mm -hmm. going to do it for sure, but I'll always be around bobsled. I think I'm a board member for the community, uh, uh club program that there is here in Calgary. And I just always want to stay close to the sport. I just, I think that I'm, I'm at a point in my life where I just am craving some financial stability. So I think it's time for me to move on and, and develop a career that I can feel confident building a life towards. Totally. And I guess to that, it's like, you know, what is next for you? You've, 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 you've already got yourself involved and I know several charities and you're a huge, huge advocate for women in sport and just sport in general. Um, what's mm -hmm. next for you? 
Yeah. I always thought that when I was done bobsled, I'd apply to med school again, but now that I'm like this far, I'm like, there's no chance that I am going back to school. I, I went back to school actually two years ago, um, or three years ago now and got a certificate in business through Queens through one of the scholarships that the COC offered us, which was pretty incredible. So, um, I, 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 finally realized it took me until I was in my thirties to realize that like, I've always loved sports so much. Why, why am I trying to not make a career out of it? <laughs> um, so I don't know what that capacity was, is going to look like I'm applying to be in sport broadcasting. I'm going to be doing some radio here during the Olympics in the next two weeks. Um, I'm going to be doing some analyst on, uh, uh, for a bobsled panel on uh, CTV, just breaking down the races and how they go. Um, but my, my really true passion, I think is in hockey. So, um, I'll be applying to some teams to work on my experiences on the sponsorship and marketing side. So maybe be involved in some capacity of that. And if not, hopefully be in front of a camera somewhere and, and being a broadcast or a host. Awesome. Well, we really look forward to whatever's next for you. And I, I just want to say, you know, obviously, thanks for joining us with this one and, and your insight and your, your passion is inspiring. It's, it's awesome to see. Um, if I guess we'll, we'll end it this way. If you could say one thing to some kid out there, maybe a, a little girl who's watching the Olympics this time around. Right. And she's mm -hmm. watching Bob Slayer. I don't know. One of those other suicidal sports sliding down a hill. I don't know how you guys have the courage to do it, but yeah. she's watching it and she's thinking, you know, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I should do that. What would you say to her? Um, if there's anything you want to do, go do it. And don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. Um, I've heard that so many times throughout my career and, and basically everything in that, uh, that a, it started when I was younger is girls don't do that or girls can't have a career in that. And, um, as I got older, it was just, Oh, you're not qualified or you're not, you don't have the, the potential, Oh, you don't have this, you don't have that. And, and for me, I think it's just constantly about proving people wrong. And because if you want it bad enough, you will make it happen. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. All right. Uh, so there you have it. That's our, that's our show for this week. Uh, thank you to Alicia Rissling for joining us. Um, just an awesome conversation about her journey, her experience, and obviously some of her struggles. Um, the bureaucracy of, of sport comes up again. Uh, I know we talked a lot about the, the struggles of the Olympic movement and, and all of that. Um, but in the end, you know, as I said, uh, I do think that it's complicated. You know, it's it's a mixed thing. And and listening to her talk, you you can hear the passion and the and the importance uh, this you know the sport of bobsleigh has meant to her life. But it's also not the be all end all. You know, she's on to new and and big exciting things as she moves into sort of retirement from piloting a, a bobsled and hopefully a pursuing a career in sports journalism. So we'll look, look forward to, to her, you know, sharing her own opinion and perspective. We didn't talk to her about it, but I do know she's a huge Oilers fan. So maybe the next time we have her on the show, she can give us a, a breakdown of how the Oilers season's going. Um, and we'll get to that. We have, we've made our Super Bowl picks. Um, Elliot's standing by his beloved Bengals. Um, <laughs> uh, you still happy with that pick, Elliot, all this, uh, you know, an hour later? Like I said, more controversial than 2022. <laughs> All right. There it is. Uh, we'll leave it there. And uh, thanks, Elliot. Thank you, Alicia. And thanks, everybody, for listening. It was a great show. Hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, yeah, and share with your friends. Uh, subscribe, follow, all that fun stuff. All right, that's Hattrick. Hattrick is a member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. Produced every week by Jordan Dyler-Coltman and Braden Dyler-Coltman. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.
Thanks for listening. Reese, you just turned the light off. I'm on a Zoom. <laughs> no, but he's Elliot can see me. Come see Elliot. Look. Hello, Elliot. You can't How's see it going? The Ordinary Podcasting Network wishes to acknowledge that the lands on which our conversations take place include Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Dene, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples, as well as the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these lands for generations. And we extend our appreciation for the opportunity to live, create, and share stories on these territories. The Ordinary Podcasting Network intends to engage in conversations and dialogue, which acknowledge that reconciliation is not a destination, but a journey, and that we remain committed to practicing our craft in a decolonized space.